So this evening I'd like to focus on the fourth of the Brahma Viharas, the quality of equanimity. If metta is to learn the art of standing beside or near, near to all things with boundless friendliness, Compassion is to turn towards all things and people, all sorrow and distress in this life, with a heart that can tremble, that can respond to distress, with the unshakable commitment to help and to heal, to relieve suffering. Joy is very much needed to soften at times the raw and painful edges of suffering that we meet, to replenish, joy is needed to replenish, to restore our hearts, to bring a a sense of spaciousness and gladness. Then equanimity is understanding what it means to stand in the midst of all experience, with unshakable balance. The word for equanimity in Pali is upekka. And upekka is translated in a range of different ways. Sometimes it's translated as being equally near to all things. At times translated as to see with patience at times translated as to look over all things, to be a guardian of. It's also to stand in the middle of all of this, to stand in the middle of all of this with boundless poise and balance. Now, equanimity as a moment-to-moment cultivation really runs through the whole of this teaching and practice. It is certainly one of the most esteemed qualities in this teaching, given enormous value. It is one of the paramis, the perfections of heart, that are the kind of landscape of compassion. Equanimity is said to be one of the essential threads of the fabric of compassion. Equanimity is one of the concentration absorption states. And it's said to be the fruit of insight practice that protects the mind from the extremes of reaction to life and to events that we can't control. And we know very often in our lives, it is a sense of not being able to control the events in our lives that so easily leaves us feeling helpless and confused. Equanimity is said to be the quality of understanding that frees us to step off the wheel of endless becoming of being lost in the world that we construct moment to moment. And I think above all, upeka or equanimity is a word that is used interchangeably with nibbana or liberation. 
the crown of all of the Brahma-viharas, the crown of metta, joy, and compassion. It's a saying from the, one of the commentaries. It says, Love gives to equanimity its boundless nature. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into indifference. Equanimity gives selflessness to love, gives patience, courage, and fearlessness to compassion. Equanimity guards joy from sentimentality. It brings all of the noble qualities of the heart together in freedom. Brings all of the noble qualities of the heart together in freedom. So I would like to really look at equanimity in a number of different ways this evening, this sense of unshakable poise, if you can imagine that. And look look at what that would mean for us in a life and in a world where we seem to be so easily knocked off balance in this fragile, uncertain, vulnerable life. (coughs) To look at how how equanimity protects the heart and how it brings suffering and distress to an end, to look at how equanimity, its development and its fruition really leads to freedom. It's a simple truth for us all that in the midst of the saying goes, the 10,000 joys and sorrows that are part of all of our lives The events, the experiences, the changes, the conditions that make up each of our day and each of our moments, there is, in truth, very little in life that we can control. No matter how heroically we strive, we can't choose to have only lovely people, delightful experiences, endless health and well-being, and we certainly cannot choose immortality. Every day, our sense doors are flooded with thoughts, with sights, with sounds, sensations, feelings, taste. We are already standing in the middle of all of this. But what equanimity actually teaches us is how to stand in the midst of uncertainty, of the uncontrollable, with a heart that cannot be shattered. Equanimity teaches us to cultivate a mind and a heart of boundless stability in the midst of the unstable. (laughs) To be responsive, to be present, to be awake in this life, but to know how not to drown how not to be overwhelmed. So the first dimension of equanimity I would like to look at this evening is in relationship to the river of events and experiences that make up every human life. The second dimension of equanimity I'd like to look at is in the domain of human relationship. It's domain of our lives where we are often so vulnerable and so shaky 
in the realm of those that we love and those that we fear, those that we dislike, those that we are indifferent towards. And the third domain of equanimity I'd like to look at is how the Buddha really did use this interchangeably with liberation, what the Buddha sometimes described as the signless deliverance of the heart. If you can get your head around that one. The signless deliverance of the heart. The cessation of all greed, hatred and delusion, the awakened heart. So we start with the obvious question, where do we practice? Where do we cultivate equanimity? Well, certainly not in the calmest moments of our lives. We cultivate, we practice equanimity in the moments of turbulence, in the moments we feel most agitated and shattered and lost, We cultivate equanimity in the moments we feel most out of balance and most resisting. We cultivate equanimity in the events of the world and in our reaction to them. Because it is in our reaction to the events of the world, of our lives, those are the moments we feel most imprisoned, most helpless. Again, I would like to stress that equanimity, like the other Brahma-Viharas we've spoken of, is not speaking about a state. It is always relational, a practice of insight, and a commitment of our hearts to freedom. So let's look at this first layer, events, experiences, and our reactions to them. The winds of praise and blame, success and failure, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, the winds of these blow through all of our lives. None of us are exempt. Praise, success, pleasure, gain, we pretty much embrace with delight and often with grasping, often with clinging. Blame, failure, pain, loss, we fear and we resist and we become agitated. There's a small saying, it says, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain. Success and failure are the eight worldly winds. They ceaselessly change. As a mountain is unshaken by the wind, So the heart of a wise person is unmoved by all the changes on this earth. What we do see is how easily our minds swing between highs and lows, elation and despair, excitement and boredom, fear and hope. We become agitated in the midst of these events. How much time, how much energy, how much dedication we bring endeavoring to rearrange the conditions of our lives so they are as we wish them to be, in small ways, in big ways. How many cushion rearrangements have you gone through on this retreat? Pretty sure just one more little rearrangement and I will have got it all right. It's such an example of what we do in the rest of our lives, you know. 
busy with the furniture all the time. <laughs> Takes a lot of energy. Trying to do all of this, why? So we only have pleasure, so we only have praise, so we only have gain and success. How much energy and dedication do we bring to avoiding pain and blame and failure and loss? It all pretty much leaves us exhausted. Or living in a state of anxiety or agitation. Living with the ideology that the well-being of our hearts, the happiness of our hearts and minds, is dependent upon the world of events and conditions being a certain way. The teaching of this path asks us to pause, to question this belief, to suggest that the sources of joy and sorrow lie in our own hearts and not in the conditions and events of this world. In the Tao it says, she who is centered in the Tao can go where she wishes without danger. She perceives the universal harmony even amidst great pain because she has found peace in her heart. We may or may not have people who love us. We may or may not have those in our lives who dislike us. We may receive praise And we will surely at times receive blame. Times, there are times when life works out the way we want it to, and we feel a measure of success. And of course, we all have our own rations of disappointment, moments when things just do not work out the way that we hoped or expected. We have people in our lives probably who are not who we think they should be. Events arise we don't want and we actually think it shouldn't be happening. We are not always the person we think we should be. We are not always a paragon of kindness and generosity and forgiveness. And the the very word should, I think, is an articulation of disappointment a sense of failure. We have this very strange idea operating in our lives that we think the first noble truth should not be part of our lives. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Of course we can listen to, you know, the four ennobling truths and think, oh yes, of course, there's unsatisfactoriness and at times pain and disappointment and struggle in life for others. (laughs) But somehow I should be exempt. It is actually a pretty radical shift, you know, to accept that we are not exempt from the first noble truth. It actually gives up a whole lot of resistance and shooting and burdening and weight of resistance and manipulation just to be able to know we're not exempt. 
Narayan told the story the other night of Kisa Gotami. She says what she came to know, that she was not exempt from the first noble truth. It's a sense of grace within that. When we can't control the world, and there is, you know, in reality, most of it we can't control, what we often experience in a sense of floundering, of feeling helpless. But it's a little bit of absurdity, isn't it? We, none of us could wake up this morning and demand that the sun would shine today. None of us could go through our day and say, you know, I only want to hear the birds today and not the traffic. We live in the illusion that we should be able to control the endless changing conditions in this life. It's a great burden. And that illusion is shattered again and again and again. Equanimity is certainly about, it's not indifference. It's not indifference. It's the willingness to be touched deeply by events. Sadness and joy comes to us. We are not invulnerable, nor do we ever endeavor, nor do we ever try in this, in this practice to be invulnerable. We can be deeply touched, and it's important that we are deeply touched. Kisugotami, even after realizing that she was not exempt from the first noble truth and that her son would not come back to life, there is no doubt that even, you know, in the happy ending of this story where she becomes ordained and, you know, becomes liberated, there's no doubt she's still grieved for her child. Can we be deeply touched and stand in the middle of all of this? Now, the insight part of equanimity is knowing clearly and deeply in ourselves that we do not hold in our hands the power to dictate the way that conditions and events will in our unfold. But we do hold in our hands the tools and the capacity for responsiveness with balance and compassion to begin to learn truly to stand in the middle of this. The insight part of equanimity discerns the difference between the events and conditions that are unfolding and our reaction to them. Because they are not the same. The events that unfold and our reaction to them are not the same thing. This is so essential that we understand There's a, a poem I, I rather like. I think you'll like it too. The title of this poem is another reason why I don't keep a gun in the house. <laughs> the neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. <laughs> The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast. But I can still hear him muffled under the music. 
barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra. His head, his head raised confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for barking dog. When the record finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking. His eye is fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton. While the other musicians list in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo, <laughs> that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. <laughs> When we cling to events, there is a shaping of a sense of self, a sense of I, aligned with the events that are grasped hold of. When sadness is clung to, I am sad. When disappointment is clung to, there is a shaping of a disappointed self. Grasping or clinging, of course, is only an extension, is only a continuum of craving and aversion. And these are the source of agitation and contractedness and suffering. Craving and aversion are the conditions for grasping, for being knocked off balance. Metta, compassion, joy are the conditions for non-grasping. This path is all about, all about process and conditions. This is what understanding our life is about is about understanding this unfolding matrix of process and conditions and asking ourselves, what are we cultivating? What are we feeding in this moment? We can learn not only to stand in the midst of all these events in our lives without being for and against, we can also learn to stand in the midst of craving and aversion, of wanting and not wanting with equanimity. Events touch us. Craving and aversion knocks us off balance. So events touch us. Craving and aversion knocks us off balance. They are the reactions to events. They are the ways in which we endow events with the power to shatter our hearts. We are never short of opportunities, actually, to meet craving and aversion with equanimity, learning to cool their fires. Every moment we are willing to do that is a moment, in a sense, where we are truly reclaiming our freedom. The second domain of equanimity is the domain of human relationships the domain where we often, I think, feel most vulnerable. We long to be connected. We often feel apart. We do not always know what it means to be wise in the midst of love and in the midst of hate. The anger and rage of others, you know, it pierces our hearts. We can so fear the rage of others. We can so fear even being slighted by others. The anger and the rage and the fear, the resentment we can feel for others can leach joy from our lives, create a cascade of thinking. 
we think a lot about our fears. We move into condemnation and judgment so easily. We can think so much about injuries in the past and the present. And we get knocked off balance. But love can knock us equally off balance. I mean, the great art of a human being is to be able to love deeply and to receive love. But we can become infatuated with love just as we can become infatuated with ill will. When we are infatuated with love, we become again agitated, protective, pursuing, trying to grasp, fearing its loss. Then actually we experience the painfulness of the infatuation with love. In truth, the mind that is lost in hatred or lost in the infatuation infatuation with love there's a very common bond between those two. Both become preoccupied, even obsessed with the object of their passions. Both in the infatuation with love and in hatred, both places in a very real way seed and yield the quality of inner sufficiency and autonomy to the object of the passion both in a very real way make themselves a prisoner of those passions. So equanimity is about balance, most deeply concerned with the freedom of our hearts. Hatred in it is, of course, the most extreme form of aversion, fueled and fired by fear and by thought. All of us in this life will experience moments, the very painful moments of feeling disconnected and apart. And this gap between self and other is never neutral. It is that gap that fills with fear, fills with ill will. It's so interesting that the infatuation, infatuation with both hatred and love, they both separate and bind us. We can see that being rejected by another is actually no, no more and no less painful than abandoning and forsaking another. The great challenge of this path, the great challenge of this teaching is really not to forsake or abandon anyone or anything and to learn how to be upright in the face of rage, in the face of hatred, the face of fear. Martin Luther King Jr., he once wrote, Never succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter. As you press for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline, using using only the instruments of love. Every moment in our lives when we face ill will, when we face hatred, Really, there are two roads that open up in front of us. One is the road of practicing hatred, practicing ill will. And this is a very stony road that only ever has one outcome, one destination, which is more hatred, more alienation, more separation. It is is important for us to, uh, to understand in this life we can't change or transform the heart of another person. 
Only they have dominion over their thoughts, their passions, the emotions that they practice and experience. But if we can find stillness and the whispers of balance in our own heart and mind, we can learn actually not to cede, not to give so much authority to the thoughts and the words and the acts of ill will of another. They may or may not be telling us anything at all true about ourselves. Interesting. They may be saying a whole lot about the torment and the confusion of the mind of another. We can perhaps learn not to give so much credibility and authority to our own thoughts and emotions of blame and aversion and ask, are they telling us anything true about another person or are they speaking about our own sense of injury and woundedness that asks for compassion? We are the only ones who can calm our own hearts and explore what it means to develop the equilibrium that can turn towards the world without fear, still feeling, but perhaps not feeling shattered. One of the representations of Kuan Yin, the deity at the back of the room, the the deity of compassion, it's, it's often spoken of as being akin to a willow branch that can bend in the face of suffering and yet not be broken, be able to come back upright. Camus once said, we all carry within us our places of exile, our crimes, our ravages. Our task is not to unleash them on the world. It is to transform them in ourselves and others. What does equanimity mean in our relationships of love, of tenderness, of affection? Because it's certainly not about, equanimity is not about coldness or indifference. It's about understanding. I once saw a painting of a woman standing on the banks of a raging river and she's watching in anguish as her child is swept away by the current. And in this painting, the woman has no arms. It's kind of like the stuff of nightmares, but in a way it's also the stuff of life. We care. And I think particularly as women, we are asked in this life often to do a great deal of caring. We care for children, we care for the young, we are often caring for the elderly, we care for friends, we care for those who are broken in life. Women actually do a lot of caring. And there is often a great deal of matter in that. At times there's joy, at times there's compassion, but there's also such a great need for equanimity. 
At times we see people that we love and care for making choices that harm themselves, engaging in acts and words that bring a waterfall of suffering upon themselves or upon others. We see people that we love age, become ill, and die. We see at times the despair and helplessness of aging and frailty in those that we care about. We can respond, of course, as wholeheartedly as we can. We can love. Our hearts can quiver and tremble with compassion. And at the same time, there are moments when we can feel quite lost and quite overwhelmed in knowing that we can't fix everything. That we can't always heal the pain of another. We can't always change the heart of another. And yet it is that knowing that is the very ground of equanimity. There are these phrases from a Sri Lankan translation of Upeka. It says, this life is but a play of joy and sorrow. May we remain undisturbed by life's rise and fall. I care deeply for you, but you are the parent of your, of your actions and their fruit, and I sadly cannot keep you from distress. What would it mean for us to live in the light of this understanding? We care, but we can't keep another person, no matter how much we love them. We cannot keep them from distress. I think sometimes we hear that line, you know, that you are the parent of your actions and their consequences. Uh, it's very important when we hear that line to understand that this, this is not a line of blame or condemnation. You know, you're the parent of your actions and their consequences. It's not meant like that at all. But surely we know for ourselves that our own actions and their consequences are born of our own understanding and confusion. We know this. Our own actions and their consequences are born of our own capacities for meta or for ill will. And so too is this true of all beings. Just as we know, as much as others may love and care for us, they don't hold the power to completely heal our sorrow. And another person certainly doesn't hold the power to change the ways of our hearts, to change the ways of our minds. This is only in our hands, and we know this. And so, too, is this true of another. In the moments when we find ourselves faced with sorrow and pain in those we love, or in all of the world, we are asked to find, to make our home in that deep understanding of the way things actually are, that this first noble truth, none of us will be exempt from in this life, from our own measure of sorrow and our time's suffering, part of a life of a constantly changing, insecure, 
uncertain conditions, part of living in a world which is a mandala of conditions and process. Coming together at times in ways that can be deeply difficult and challenging. But knowing and living in the light of the way things actually are is in truth our only refuge. It, it is what allows us to find that very small space within ourselves, even as our hearts tremble. That small space of stillness that enables us to respond rather than being overwhelmed. If I tell you a little bit of a personal, I had a very personal encounter with this quite recently when um, my son was was very, very severely injured in a street mugging. And, uh, you know, I, I was teaching a retreat at the time, and I, I suddenly got this news, you know, that he was found unconscious on the street. And, and, you know, as a mother, this is not an easy thing to hear. You know, and I was in the midst of teaching this retreat, and, you know, I did everything that was needed to do to, in order to bring him back home from London to look after him. So I knew everything was in place. And I went back to teach the next morning while all of this was moving along as it needed to. And I'm sure I sat there looking like a Buddha. You know, and inwardly, I'm like, <laughs> you know, that, that quiver. But it, I knew it was just finding that small space of stillness to rest in that was enabling, enabling to take care rather than, you know, running around like a wild woman screaming, which actually would not help at all. But just finding that small space of stillness inwardly was going to be the place that could respond and could care. As a third dimension of equanimity that I'd like to touch on is the way in which equanimity is used interchangeably with nibbana or liberation the fully awakened heart. I'd like to read you something from the Udana Sutta in praise of equanimity. You have to listen to this really carefully. (laughs) For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who does not cling, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming or going. Where no coming or going is, there is no arising nor passing away. There is neither this world nor a world beyond nor a state between. This verily is the end of suffering. This is what the Buddha called the signless deliverance of the mind, the signless deliverance of the heart, the end of suffering, the fruit of the path, an unshakable wisdom, understanding, manifesting an unshakable Metta, joy, compassion, equanimity. So let's look at what is a signless deliverance of the heart. I have come to the frightening conclusion. I didn't write this, by the way. This is a quote. I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. 
It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis is escalated or de-escalated and a person humanized or dehumanized. Tagore put it a little differently. He said, most people believe the mind to be a mirror, more or less accurately reflecting the world outside of them, not realizing, on the contrary, that the mind itself is the principal element of creation. We are the architects of our world. With perception and with thought, we construct the world of the moment, and we inhabit those constructions. We live them, and we respond and react from their foundations. Moment to moment, our sense doors are interfacing with the world, inwardly and outwardly. Sight, sound, sensations, taste, touch, thoughts, images, registering in consciousness, and We perceive them. We have a name for them. This is their sign. This is the sign that perception places upon all things. The name becomes a designation. The sign becomes a designation. And the name, in turn, is seen to sum up their reality. Just as our own name is, tends to be the standard bearer for all that we believe ourselves to be. Wittgenstein put it, he says, language delivers us a picture and the picture holds us captive. Clearly, it's, we can't do without perception. It's what enables us to navigate through life, to drink from a glass of water then, rather than wondering why the bell doesn't deliver. Sitting on a chair rather than on a Buddha statue. But perception without mindfulness and without insight, perception is never innocent. Perception is never bare. Perception without mindfulness and insight triggers very immediately into a world of association. How we have seen that sight in the past. What that sound of a bird reminds us of. How we have felt this particular sensation before. How we've interacted with that particular person in the past. Perception and memory are so closely interwoven It is our sign that we place upon things. Think about how this is. Perhaps we have come to know the person who is always late in the hall. Perhaps we have come to know the person who is always in the front of the food line. 
Perhaps we've come to know the sensation in our back that is the same as the last sitting. I perceive them. I perceive them. Perception, drawing on association, means that we very rarely actually ever see anything anew, and we very rarely see anything as it is in this moment. We see through the lens of the past. Things are freeze-framed. The picture holds us captive. The picture holds us captive. Perception is feeding not only on past association and memory, but past association and memory in turn is feeding upon past experience, past interpretation, and past reactions, our likes and our dislikes, our wants and our not wants. We may then only need to hear the sound of the door opening, sitting there with our eyes unclosed, and we feel the wave of a judgment or aversion arising. I know who that is. Hmm? Such an inconsiderate person. We have a sign. We only need to feel the twinge of a sensation in our back oh, this sitting is just going to be like the last one, and we feel the fear and the dread arising. We see a person who maybe has the same eyes as a father we had difficulty with, and we're cast back into childhood anxieties, difficult emotions, opening the door to memory and judgment and a determination of who we are. Sign-making, sign-making is always about I am, you are, that is. This process of perception, sign-making, association, feeding and activating underlying tendencies of craving, aversion, delusion, then it is no surprise, is it, that we find ourselves walking in these same closed circles of reactivity. We're walking in the same closed circles of reactivity, reacting agitated to the signs. So the signs are the names that come to us through perception and the whole retinue of associations and reactions. It actually keeps the world to fixed, fixed and seen in a particular way. And it keeps us fixed and locked into a sense of self that feels eternal. I am, I always was, I always will be. Blake once said, when the doors of perception are cleansed, the world appears as it is, infinite. The Buddha speaking of the signless deliverance of the heart is speaking about freeing the heart from the constructing process of fixing the world, ourselves, and things into something. Something very finite. The deepening of our practice, the deepening of our freedom, is actually a movement towards the infinite, the not finite. 
no longer fixing, no longer limiting, no longer defining. Perception happens. We navigate our way through life. But with this practice and with understanding, we learn actually to sever the link between perception and underlying tendencies. So we do can see anew. Freeing perception from greed, hatred, delusion is actually to liberate the world and to liberate other people from our definition of them. And actually compassion is to liberate people from our fixed perceptions about them. Enabling us to see all things anew and that is what enables us to respond with metta with compassion and with joy. Liberating our own hearts for us to be a fluid, changing, unfolding being, not defined, not fixed by any perception. This is equanimity without signs. This is the signless deliverance of the heart, creating no self, no other, but an awakening, unfolding mandala of life that actually has no center. So end with this piece from the Adana Sutta again in praise of equanimity. For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who does not cling, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming or going. Where no coming or going is, there is no arising nor passing away. There is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor a state between. This verily is the end of suffering. We have just a moment quietly together. We'll have a walking period until quarter to nine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.